welcome to season two of Prove Me Wrong, Please. Uh, if you've listened to previous episodes, I'm sure you've already noticed that one thing that has changed with this new season is the intro track. Shout out Kyle and Banco for that. But the only other major difference in terms of this season compared to the first is the general format of each episode. So instead of preparing uh, monologues that I, in the first season, encouraged others to respond to, I now will just be having conversations directly with folks who I know disagree with me, at least on some level, about the particular topic for the week. Uh, And I'm doing this because I just feel like it is a little bit more collaborative and interesting to listen to, and also a lot less time consuming on my end. Um, I will also be regularly posting uh, arguments and statements on my Prove Me Wrong Please Twitter account, along with a Google Voice number that I encourage anyone to call at any point in order to either leave me a voicemail with your thoughts or uh, to connect with me in order to have a conversation, both of which will be recorded and included on that week's episode. So that's another big change. Uh, As always, you're still welcome to send me your thoughts via email at pmwp.pod at gmail.com. And as I've stated since the beginning, the goal of this podcast uh, remains the same, and that is to just talk about divisive issues in politics in a way that I think facilitates friendly dialogue and mutual understanding and is a little bit more constructive at a time that I feel like this is most essential and lacking in today's media environment. That is why last week I reached out to an old college friend of mine uh, who I've talked politics with in the past to help kick off this new year and new season of Prove Me Wrong, Please. Now, although Jake and I often disagree on the specifics on certain issues, I found that throughout our past conversations, we, like many Americans I imagine, actually end up agreeing on much more than we think. Now, we spoke this Sunday evening about a variety of topics, starting with the impeachment of Donald Trump last week for his role in inciting the violence at the Capitol and whether or not the GOP as a whole deserves some blame for getting us to that point. But we also spoke about the, albeit few, silver linings of what I believe is the worst presidency in modern history, um, which I realized I didn't actually make clear in the conversation, but yeah. Anyways, um, and finally, we also talked about just the future of the Republican Party and the upcoming Biden administration. So in this moment of heightened tension uh, in politics, I hope you'll join me as I talk with my friend Jake about who is really to blame for the Capitol riots and how we move on from here. And as always, I encourage you to prove me wrong, please. Dope. All right. Yeah, let's just get into it. Um, well, yeah, I mean, Jake, thanks for joining. Um, I Like I prefaced uh, my previous episode with um, the person I was speaking to, I'm not really looking for a debate. I mean, you're a law student, so you'd probably kick my ass if this were a debate, but uh <laughs> I'm more so interested in just kind of having a conversation and I wanted to reach out to you specifically because you're someone that I've kind of talked politics uh, back and forth every now and then over the last year or two. Um, and you're also probably the highest earner on PolitiQ as well. So I know you <laughs> at least value objective facts and pay quite a bit of attention to the news and specifically politics. Um, anyways, like today we are about almost two weeks removed from the coup attempt at the Capitol, which resulted in numerous investigations uh, into the Trump supporters who were there, and the second impeachment of Donald Trump, which happened last week. 
Uh, Democrats argue that move was essentially necessary in order to hold him accountable and also to remove him from office due to what they argue is his dangerous instability, uh, even if it's coming at the tail end of his presidency. I do want to note that it was actually the most bipartisan impeachment in history, uh, with 10 Republicans in the House of Reps actually voting in support. However, the vast majority of Republicans uh, still voted against it and say now that we should kind of move on and are demanding unity and are actually some are blaming the Democrats for kind of uh, using impeachment to actually further escalate violence. I'm just generally curious, what's your reaction to the last like two weeks? And do you agree with uh, the effort to actually impeach Trump uh, in the House of Representatives? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, Connor, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, it's always nice. I like to uh, I like to talk politics um, in a way that a lot of people are uncomfortable with these days. And it's also just like, you know, I've had conversations with you. I know you you've had fully developed thoughts and opinions on this. And I, it's always nice, I think, to just be able to, like, have a conversation at that level. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, at the top line, I think it was uh, it was what it was. I mean, it was a coup attempt on the 6th. Um, I, uh, so I'm a former Hill staffer. I think you know that, um, yeah. I had a bunch of friends who, uh, were on the floor, were locked down in the building. Um, one of our fraternity brothers, Zach Hudak was, it's his second day as a congressional reporter, huh. um, on the I sixth, he was locked down in the chamber. Um, and so I, yeah, I remember watching that in real time and just like not believing that it's happening that, you know, like the Confederates never were able to storm the Capitol. The Confederates never got that far north. And obviously there's a lot of difference there, but from a symbolic standpoint, I think that's, uh, you know, it's just gonna be a powerful image for a very long time. Um, in terms of the shirt version on impeachment, yes, I agree with it. Um, Cause I think at some point we, I, I think there's a lot of problems with how the Republicans have initially approached this and saying that, um, doing impeachment or impeaching again is divisive. Um, the main reason I think being that, well, if this isn't the line, what, what is the line? Like literally as Trump has said, could he, would it be shooting somebody or would that be too divisive? Um, no, it's at some point you have to move on from whether it's going to cause outrage and consider the fact that, you know, this deserves, you need to have consequences for these actions. Otherwise they're just going to keep happening or keep getting worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think people like uh, Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley, some of the more vocal enablers of Trump's rhetoric in Congress, deserve um, some kind of uh, responsibility? And I mean, you live in Texas. Like, what, what do you anticipate uh, Ted Cruz's political future to be? Because I think he's up for reelection in four years, right? I think so. Because I, I, I want, because Beto, the Beto Cruz race was 18, I think. So that would be, mm-hmm. he'd be up in 24. Um, so I, I think they do have some responsibility, but it, I mean, it's a tough, it's a tough line, I think for several reasons. Um, I mean, you saw Cruz and Holly both essentially put out statements saying that, oh, this is what our constituents wants, or we're just calling for accountability or something to that extent, but failed to acknowledge reality. The only reason people are riled up about this is because they've been pushing these conspiracy theories and these lies for the past three months or for longer in some cases. Mm-hmm. And it's created a bunch of people who legitimately think that the election was stolen. Um, and I, w- I was talking with my brother about this. And, you know, we have to hold the people who are physically in the Capitol, physically did it responsible. 
Um, and I think the FBI, at least to this point, has done a pretty good job. I think it's something like 300 arrests at this point with hundreds more likely to come. Um, and like holding them responsible is absolutely the right move. But just holding them responsible doesn't fully encapsulate everything because you have to, if you legitimately thought the election was being stolen and that, you know, or whatever conspiracy theory rabbit hole you want to go down, but if you legitimately think all those things, then those actions start to look a lot more reasonable. And I'm not endorsing that. I don't agree with that. But um, I yeah. think that a lot of people legitimately thought they were doing the right thing. Um, and part of the reason they thought they were doing the right thing is because we've been having people in positions of powers with pulpits, uh, be it Trump, be it Cruz, Holly, whoever, have been pushing these lies um, and just these falsehoods. And that's created this kind of groundswell of support for these uh these sort of actions yeah i um kind of to piggyback off what you said i i agree i think obviously you know the fbi and whatnot needs to pursue all the individuals who actually took part but i think it's sort of missing the larger problem which is the environment in which a lot of these people live which i argue is kind of an alternate reality where you know joe biden and democrats literally did steal the election from trump um who is in their minds, like the only true defender of democracy, democracy and whatnot. And so in my mind, instead of sort of paying much of the attention onto these individual people, I think more attention needs to be placed onto like conservative media outlets that perpetuate these sort of what I argue or believe are conspiracy theories. Um, and, and I also, I, I genuinely understand how a lot of these people who are just upset at you know political corruption perhaps in general or just uh the the system perhaps ignoring them um could turn to what they view as like their literal last attempt to defend democracy even though it is a completely warped uh, understanding of the actual process and whatnot i guess i'm just worried about what could be the result in another four years if this sort of media environment doesn't change and perhaps the election does come down to instead of maybe Georgia, maybe a democratic controlled uh, swing state that is much more easily able to be, you know, portrayed as pulling the strings behind the scenes for the democratic president, or even the other way around. I think there's just a lot of uh, loss of faith in the general institution that this election and specifically this president has created that will inevitably have negative outcomes uh, in future elections. Um, yeah, no, uh, I, I think we're on the same page on a lot of that. And it's, it's tough to think what the, uh, what the consequences need to be and what the proper action is. Because, um, you know, I mean, regardless of uh, whether it could actually happen, you know, the government in a theoretical universe could just say, okay, well, we're going to shut down Fox News or do something like that. And like, if that's possible, that solves the media issue in a lot of ways. But like, that's not probably ever going to fly legally and yeah. it's going to create a lot of these issues about so everybody who thinks that the government is censoring speech and now when they actually go out and do something that would be that albeit for good reasons then it actually creates that and i don't know if we want to put the government in a position of deciding um yeah you know, what speech is okay or what isn't um, totally, totally i guess that's why i hold uh, elected officials um more responsible i guess uh yeah because I feel like it's sort of their job to point out the fact that like, look, all these, you know, OAN, Newsmax, they're essentially lying to people. And and if we know, I mean, Ted Cruz went to like what Harvard Law, as did 
Josh Hawley. I think Hawley was Yale, and I think Yale, was yeah. Harvard. Point yeah. being, like, they both know that Biden won the election legally, like fair and square. And without people like them, like coming out and being like forthright about it, then I feel like it just kind of feeds this system of distrust. Yeah, yeah, no, I and I agree. I think that's the best way to do it is to try to hold these elected officials responsible. Um, and you know, the the base, the most basic level is obviously with your vote. Um, and doing it that manner but that's you know not that's not resp- necessarily responsive because like with Cruz he's got another four years Holly just won uh I think is up next term but like even still that's two years out um you know there have been a bunch of things thrown around about expulsion or not seating them censure um and I I, I think that censure is good I think uh the case for expulsion is probably a little bit harder um but it also just comes down to um, we, we have to stop incentivizing people being able to just give these lies and tell these lies. Um, and the easiest way to do that is just with your votes. Um, and we've seen come some kind of groundswell from some Republican groups. A lot of the, the anti-Trump Republican groups that kind of sprung up in the last four years mm-hmm. have already started putting pressure on whether it's advertisers or other, other means against people like Hawley and Cruz. Um, Rick Scott, who voted against certification as the head of the Republican Senate, uh, the NRSC, which fundraises for Republicans running for Senate. Mm-hmm. And there are serious concerns that he is not going to be able to bring in the money necessary just because there's been such already a massive number of companies that just say we're not going to support people who voted against certification. Um, and so I think that that's I mean, that's an important first step. And we may see this kind of start to continue to go on and, uh, you know, snowball. Um, but it's tough to find the exact way to punish them um, yeah. because I don't think there's criminal liability there. And I think, I mean, I think there's much clearer for Trump, but um, even, even the case against Trump criminally is, is tough. Yeah. I, I do want to get into that. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the chances of his impeachment um, next week, assuming uh, McConnell brings it to the floor on the 19th, uh, because he and a few other Republicans in the Senate have started to express possible um, openness to convicting, most likely just because it, it would mean kind of removing him as a possible contender in four years, which I think a lot of the establishment GOP wants. But I guess like before I we shift focus to, to the Senate, um, I, I almost feel that the solution in part lies with just like basic democratic reforms so that a, we have like more confidence in the system, but B, you know, by eliminating or just reducing the effects of like gerrymandering, for example, we wouldn't have people like Marjorie green in the house of reps, who is like a full blown QAnon conspiracy theorist. And, you know, gerrymandering in, in my mind um, essentially just encourages candidates on both sides to appeal to the extremes as opposed to like mm-hmm. trying to attract the middle. So I'm curious, like what your thoughts, I mean, I know you're, you more identify as like a libertarian and are probably frustrated that oftentimes your favorite candidate is never even really given a legitimate shot. Um, what are your kind of thoughts on, on that? Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I, I think it's, you could probably label me either conservative or libertarian and I, I wouldn't really debate you on either point. Um, I, so gerrymandering, I think is a tough issue. Um, and I'm curious uh, on your thoughts because there are so many ways to do it. And, but um, so what, what, what should be the goal? So, I mean, there's several, several theories like, oh, it should be the most compact, sti- like compact district. 
the cleanest like kind of shapes. It should be following natural landmarks. It should be um, people who are more likely to kind of think like each other. So that'd be more like a rural versus urban. Um, then there's the, I, you could call it the swing method where they try to put as many competitive districts together as possible. Um, and trying to figure out what the exact goal is, I think shapes how you look at the process. So curiously, what, what, I, what is your goal with? I mean, I guess my goal would, form? would be to draw districts in a way that is bipartisan. So you see states, I think like California that have um, uh, bipartisan committees that essentially draw districts. Um, I could be wrong if it's California, but that's something that I think is gained in popularity that way, you know, officials, elected officials aren't the ones drawing the districts themselves to choose the voters. Um, but I guess like the ultimate goal just being to have a system in place that provides uh, equal representation kind of across the board, regardless of party, um, and is not set up in a way that enables, you know, one party to control like a very specific uh, set of or territory within a state, um, because then it or disincentivizes people who live within those districts to actually get out and vote if they know that it's never going to like really make a difference in terms of like who they support. Yeah, no. Um, and I, I'm with you on a bipartisan committee because I think at the very least, um, you know, there's some practical issues, I think, that go into that and just functionally how that how that happens. But I think that that at least can go a step is a step in the right direction of saying, OK, well, this is not just, um, you know, one party shoving its fist, uh, you know, down the other other's throat. Um, and so I think the I like the bipartisan commission idea. Um, but like I said, I think there's some, there's a lot of things to figure out and what best way to do that. Um, yeah. And I'm not going to pretend like I really know the answer or fully understand gerrymandering. Um, I, I just know that it, along with, you know, other measures like ranked choice voting, for example, are things that need to be more seriously considered if we're going to try to get out of this hyper polarized moment that we're currently in. And I see us just like continuing towards. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to pretend to be an expert either. Um, something that I think you would really enjoy is a couple of years ago, I want to say it was 2017 or 2018, 538 Nate Silver's website did a massive project on gerrymandering. Um, and they, it touched on some of the things that I talked about. So they were able, you were able to map and see what like the most compact districts would look like the cleanest cut. What can, if you prioritize making competitive districts, what that would look like. Um, I think I personally lean more on the side is that we should have as many competitive districts as possible because I think that creates the incentive for people to reject extremist functions on either side. Mm -hmm. um, that would be my, that's my personal preference, obviously. Like I said, there's a ton going on there. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think definitely we have to start to try to restore that trust. And I think the bipartisan, making it as much of a bipartisan process is a good step in that right direction. Do you think, and I'm, I'm sorry to, again, kind of attack conservatives um, when we're talking about striving for bipartisanship, mm -hmm. but if you think establishing, reestablishing trust in like the institutions is important, do you think that the GOP as a whole deserves any kind of blame for kind of perpetually promoting, you know, myths, uh, for lack of a better word, of widespread voter fraud that have kind of led us to this point where so many people dis distrust the system in general. I mean, and I and I do want to bring up, you know, Trump 
uh, immediately upon taking office, uh, assigned Chris Kobach from Kansas, I believe, who has always made, you know, targeting voter fraud, uh, like a big part of his platform. He put him in charge of a commission that was essentially delegated with trying to find, you know, the 3 million illegal votes cast for Hillary and just like investigating widespread voter fraud alleged during the 2016 election. And after a year, they essentially found nothing. Um, And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on uh, in, in terms of like the GOP kind of as a whole, just sharing some of that blame. Yeah, no, um, I, I, I would, I would agree that the GOP definitely deserves some of that blame. I think both parties to some extent have hurt the institutional norms um, that have, we've taken for granted for a while. And I think that that's something that we're going to look back on the Trump era that we may not necessarily, that, you know, is buried under, you know, the 40 other things in front of it right now. Mm-hmm. But the erosion, a lot of these norms, I think is going to be very important uh, in the long term. Um, and yeah, but I, I think it's, you can't have that conversation without, uh, about the erosion of the norms without talking about what's been going on in the GOP for the last few years. Um, that's not to say that they're only to blame, but I, yeah. I definitely think they are. Yeah. And yeah, the only reason I sort of bring this up is because there was a poll that I think I saw came out today uh, mm-hmm. that said, first of all, Trump's support among registered Republicans remains at like 90%. Uh, it's essentially been unwavering since he took office, uh, but also that uh, almost half of uh, registered Republicans don't think Biden should be inaugurated due to concerns about the legitimacy of the election. Um, and so I just kind of worry about how Biden can even move on from, you know, these past four years, let alone the last you know, few weeks and be an effective president when so many people view him as illegitimate. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if there's a clean fix to that right off the bat. Um, yep. And that, that may be the toughest thing is that um, a lot of these issues are, don't have easy fixes and don't have automatic fixes. And as much as the, the last four years have brought a lot of these things to the surface, they've been in works for years. Um, you know, you can see their maps of like Republican trust in the media has been going down for like the last 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not something that's going to be able to be restored overnight. And a lot of these other trends that have bubbled up in the past few years have been long in the making and you're not going to have short-term fixes. And I, I'm not going to pretend to know what, how do you fix that issue? Yeah. Um, but I, I think asking more of our political representatives, I think is a good first step because they, they should be, it won't get everybody. Sure. There are people who are off the deep end and won't care, mm. but it will bring, I think start to bring some people back into the fold of, you know, um, at least like back within the Overton window, like the window of reasonable conversation. Yeah. Do you think, uh, returning back to the topic of impeachment, do you think if the Senate were to convict Trump and essentially remove him from a possible candidate in the future, that would help unify the country and kind of reestablish trust in the institutions? Or do you more so buy the argument that like, you know, maybe turning off the spotlight, spotlight on Trump, so to speak, would be the most effective punishment? Um, cause that's, I mean, an, I can't ar- that's an argument that, sorry to, um, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, what's his face? Uh, former FBI director, um, is essentially making right now. He just came, came out with his book. Uh, and he's, his argument is basically one that, you know, I've kind of seen, um, on some of the speeches on the floor and in Congress lately is just that look for the, convicting him, whether or not it's right is only going to kind of further, uh, inflame the situation is just not worth it. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't. Let me, let me be very clear. I think it's, it's going to escalate things at least in the short term. But um, part of what um, I thought was problematic with the certification votes is you saw these rumors and anonymous quotes of members saying, "Hey, I'm, I would vote to impeach Trump, um, but I'm legitimately scared for my safety and my family's safety." Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm extremely sympathetic to those concerns because I can't imagine what it's like to be um, constantly hounded by death threats and things like that, um, or have to been in the Capitol while that's going on with people running around saying they're going to hang lawmakers. Um, Did you ever feel unsafe working on, on the Hill? Um, I'm trying to think. No, not really. I mean, I, I went through a couple of lockdowns, but lockdowns happen all the time. Um, and at the end of the day, um, to be fair, I was never there when there were 15,000 people banging on the doors of the Capitol. Yeah. But like all the Capitol, most of the Capitol police are, you know, like ex-special forces, ex-armed services have, you know, 10 years of law enforcement experience and they're carrying around, they're walking around with body armor, like automatic weapons and all that kind of stuff. There's a camera everywhere. Um, and I mean, I, I think that that's something that's important to take away from the riots. It's just that they were so understaffed that there was no way to do effectively what they needed to do. But yeah. um, I, I never had anything where I was like, where I personally felt unsafe. Like, sure, I got like a crazy person calling in, yeah, saying, you know, like, oh, you're a traitor, or you know, you all deserve to die, things like that. But nothing that I ever felt was like actionable. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I am curious, like what your take is on, um, I mean, some of the Republicans last week kind of made headlines for complaining about like the new security measures that are being put in place. Um, and just generally, like, what are, you, what are your thoughts or what are your experiences from what you remember about like the just security protocols of like working in that building? Yeah. Oh, um, I had one thing that I wanted to finish on impeachment because I started oh, saying yeah. that I'm sympathetic to the death threats and all that. And that's how we got off. So I'm sympathetic to that, but like by voting against impeachment for that reason, or at least that stated reason, you're incentivizing people to keep doing these things because they think it'll force you to do what they want. Um, and it's, uh, it, that, that's just problematic for so many reasons. Um, you're feeding the beast that's gonna eat you basically. Yeah. Um, but um, so on the security measures, um, I mean, I think the thing that you have to realize at the end of the day is that no matter what, what's going on um, and what the nominal rules of the Capitol are is that the members are almost always going to do whatever the hell they want to do. Mm -hmm. um, so there's always the story that, um, so when Nancy Pelosi was first speaker um, in the 2000s, John Boehner, who was, uh, I think, majority leader at that time, um, you know, running joke that you never saw John Boehner without a pack of cigarettes and a glass of wine. Uh, Nancy Pelosi banned smoking in the Capitol. And John Boehner would smoke like a pack a day in his office or like things like that. Cause like, who's going to be the Capitol police officer that goes in there and tries to arrest or like try to kick out the majority leader of the house of representatives. Yeah. Um, and like, it's things like that. So like all the staffers, every time we go into the buildings, we go through metal detectors. We do that just like everybody else does. Um, I mean, I get, I'm sympathetic to the, Capitol Police and them trying to like do it, but there was just no good way that it was ever going to end with the results that they wanted. Like, yeah, 
all it would take is one person just to be like, I'm not going to do it. And the Capitol Police officer is not going to arrest, you know, a member of Congress who refused to go through or refuses to like go through the metal detector. Um, and I, I mean, that's, I'm, that's an unsympathetic or like, I'm sympathetic to the Capitol Police officer that gets put in that position just because they're not necessarily making the rules, but they're going to get blamed when they don't get followed. Yeah. Um, even though it's really just like something that's going to be impossible for them to do. Yeah. It's, it's pretty wild to just like see um, all, you know, everything that's going on in DC um, leading up to the inauguration on Wednesday. I mean, what, like we currently have more troops stationed in DC than Iraq and Afghanistan combined. I'm pretty sure 20,000 now, right? Yeah. 25 or something like that. Uh, Absurd number of people. Yeah. And Uh, I, I mean, it's weird because like, I see that and part of me is like, okay, that's great. You know, nothing is going to really happen. But then I, I'm trying to like put myself in the mindset of, you know, one of these people who stormed the Capitol two weeks ago. And to me, I feel like this is almost like further proof of their conspiracy in a sense. Like, look, now we're, we're seeing the heavy hand of government um, militarizing, uh, you know, DC, they're, they're protecting the falsely elected president at all costs, blah, blah, blah. And it, it, it's funny, like today is the 17th. And so I was almost expecting there to be some kind of violence around the country. You know how the FBI released like a memo, like a week or two ago, warning state capitals of potential violence leading up to the election. Um, and, and I honestly think luckily if there wasn't playoff football today, there probably would have been a little bit more um, violence, but I, I, I'm curious, like, what do you anticipate happening uh, on Wednesday for the inauguration? Do you think anything bad is going to happen? Or do you think kind of the backlash to, um, you know, the Capitol riot has essentially dissuaded a lot of these people from actually acting? Um, I think one thing that we'll see is that the, the law, I'm just going to call it law enforcement, even though it's National Guard. I think there's yeah. some, you know, uh, other other groups in there. I think we're going to see very proactive law enforcement. Um, and like, obviously, I'm not like privy to those plans, but I would be shocked if there's gonna if they're gonna let any sort of big gathering happen. Um, and I think that's unfortunate from a First Amendment standpoint, but I also think it's a necessity given that what what we've seen. Um, and I think we're going to see very very aggressive that kind of thing, keeping people away. Um, but I don't think we're going to see. Like, so I saw some talk that, you know, the Capitol Police should have been essentially much more aggressive with the force that they were using in response um, to the people storming the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get where that's coming from. But like the instant that um, the instant that somebody gets shot out and like obviously one woman lost her life. But like when you start shooting into a crowd, you open up a lot of other issues. And I think we'll see a lot of restraint on like the deadly force angle but a lot of uh, much more aggressive tactics in dispersing crowds, keeping things from escalating in a way that the Capitol police weren't able to do on the sixth. Yeah. I think, I think criticisms of the individual officers are kind of bullshit because I mean, we don't know what it it would be like to be put in that sort of a scenario. That's essentially unprecedented. Uh, I mean, there are those who kind of like open the gates and like, you know, we're taking selfies and stuff that I think should be, rightfully criticized, but for the most part, I think any criticism, at least on my end of the Capitol police with regards to that day should just be the overall like planning and management 
because, you know, the FBI, Christopher Ray last year has came out pretty publicly and forcefully saying white supremacy is the number one domestic terrorist threat. I mean, it has been for a while now. Uh, there was obviously plenty of chatter on Parler and these far right wing groups leading up to that day in particular. And the FBI ultimately decided not to actually act on it because they were worried about what it would look like in terms of like censoring free speech. And so I guess like my, uh, I, I totally agree with you is what I'm saying. Like I, I, yeah. I don't think blaming these people for not acting more aggressively in the moment is the right call because I mean, I obviously wasn't there, can't uh, attest to their personal situation. And I also think a lot of them handled it decently well by, by kind yeah. of, uh, I mean like the guy, the video of that guy who was, uh, like lured them away yeah. from the Senate chamber while it was still getting locked down. Like, I think he's going to get the Congressional uh, Medal of Honor and rightly deserves it. Yeah, that's awesome. Frankly, probably saved a bunch of people's lives. Um, Did you see reports like this, like within the last few days that the, the, like they, a lot of the protesters, maybe not, not all of them by any means, or maybe not even a majority, but there were, there were actual plans to like capture and assassinate numerous like people uh, and yeah time. yeah so i mean i think it's it's always hard with these big groups because i think even within the group they were all kind of there for the same reason but i think there's you know the spectrum in that group because there's yeah, the people totally. you have you've seen like the profiles of like uh you know like a school teacher who was outside and like went or whatever but like wasn't trying to get violent was was just there because she genuinely thought that trump won the election and then you contrast that with, I think, like the famous picture now of that guy running around in the gallery with zip ties yeah. and then the countless videos of saying, hang Mike Pence or, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, it's just, um, I think there's definitely a spectrum in there and I think there's levels of culpability. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I've been to numerous Trump rallies and had pretty good conversations with folks across the spectrum um, and, and I know that most Trump supporters, uh, for the most part, I think at least those that I've met and talked to would not in any way endorse at that level of violence in terms of like actually killing politicians and more so are just in favor of the, the symbol that it sent to not just Democrats, but just government in general of like, you know, fuck the system. I guess I'm like kind of sympathetic to that, especially if a lot of these people are those who have just kind of literally just been left behind by the progress of the last like 20, 30 years um, and the re just resulting consequences of just like economic globalization. Um, I think it's, it's, it's really hard to pinpoint like a specific um, uh, cause of the riot when it, it is just so yeah. complex of an issue that, that led us to this point. Yeah. Um, and I, I think we're going to spend, you know, next couple of years still i mean like we've done a lot in two weeks but i think this is something that's going to take years to fully unpack and figure out and discuss and dissect yeah um i, I do want to shift focus a little bit and um talk about trump's legacy because i mean he only has a few more days left in office and hopefully i will not talk about him anymore at least near not nearly as much as i have been in the past um uh, I mentioned, you know, polling there. I also saw a recent poll that, like I said, had, you know, 90% approval rating among registered Republicans for Trump. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess like my 
question is just like, what are, what are your thoughts about like his, his legacy as a whole? Because I do want to identify, I guess, like some silver linings, which are that he did bring a lot more people into the conversation um, and that he kind of demonstrated not just him, but like his administration kind of like the faults in the system and like where there are cracks that kind of need plugging, I guess. Um, And just like Mm -hmm. how fragile our democracy truly is. Um, Granted, I don't think he himself like deserves like credit for any of this necessarily, but I I am curious what your just general thoughts are uh, in terms of just reflecting on his presidency in the last four years. Yeah. I mean, so uh, there's two things that I, that I wanted to highlight other than, I mean, so um, me being a generally lower taxes is good guy. Um, the ta- I'm a fan of the tax cuts. I think there's almost no responsibility in getting that done on him because it was written by Congress and done by Congress. And basically he su- took credit for it and signed it. Um, Same with like the first step act, I would argue, which I think is like another... the first step act was written before he was elected. Exactly. Exactly. But I mean, it, yeah, uh, it was enacted while he was president. So sure. I'll give it to him, but that's, that's an they, example. So, yeah, I think I think more so with the first step back when with the tax cuts, there was at least some White House involvement in helping that get over the finish line. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think two major policy issues where uh, Trump has shifted the conversation uh, significantly. Uh, first is China. Um, I think the uh, hawkish views on China are now pretty pretty strongly supported across the spectrum. And I don't think that's going to go anywhere. Um, I think we're going to see um, a very aggressive China portfolio. You know what? I think it's going to look different than how the Trump administration has done it. But I think Biden is going to take an aggressive China policy, uh, aggressive stance towards China. And, and just to be clear, um, you're saying this is a good thing? I think it is. Um, I mean, I think we've, we've gotten distracted. And like Russia has a lot, a lot of ways they're our, our enemy as well. But from a functional standpoint, um, you know, Russia is a sixth grader and, you know, China is a college graduate. Um, Like we're dealing with different sorts of things Um, because economically China is going to be able to um, to pressure the United States in ways that Russia just is not going to be able to. Um, China has way more influence um, because generally they're more respected than Russia, frankly. and they've been better at planning about how they're going to, you know, execute that influence and use that influence. Um, they're very united, albeit in part because there's no dissenters aren't allowed. Um, and I think for a lot of reasons that represents a threat to the United States, um, not only a threat to the United States, but a threat to democracy. Uh, yeah. Um, just the free world. Um, and so I think that Trump, I don't, I disagree with some of the things that he did in taking that stance. Like the trade deficit is just, it's bullshit. Like it, yeah, like, it's a joke. Nobody cares about that. Um, but I think the rhetoric, I think has set the tone and shifted a lot of views and thoughts. Um, and I think that's going to be a lasting influence at least, you know, for the next decade or so. Um, and then I think a lot of the, Trump was also able to channel a lot of the anger towards big tech for better or for worse. Um, and cause we see it, it, it plays out differently uh, between Republicans and Democrats. So a lot of the Republicans are angry about censorship and free speech rights and things, how that plays out. Um, Democrats tend to be more interested in, you know, the antitrust concerns, the privacy concerns, although I think privacy kind of goes both ways, but yeah. 
Um, I think that that, because I mean, like, not a lot of people were talking about these issues in any significant fashion in 2015. Um, and I think both of those things are uh, areas where Trump has significantly changed the conversation in a way that's going to outlast his presidency. Totally. I will, I will note with regards to the tech conversation, because I agree, I think that's something that actually provides a good opportunity for cooperation uh, in Congress um, is, is just that, like, I think, you know, five years ago, we didn't really fully understand or appreciate the um, influence of social media and, and, you know, the 2016 election to a large extent and everything that has kind of led us up to this point specifically, I think has kind of proven to people across the spectrum, just how, like I said, influential and powerful that industry is and why it, in my mind, and I think now a lot of um, minds on the right also kind of agree that it deserves a little bit more scrutiny and um, this sort of like laissez-faire approach can result in outcomes that are just, you know, not beneficial for either side, uh, whether it be, you know, censorship on behalf of conservatives or just the the buildup of what is arguably just monopolies uh, that Democrats want to see busted. Yeah. I think it's, I think that's, um, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because there's this united hatred of big tech, but everybody hates it for a slightly different reason. And it's going to be kind of interesting to see which, which areas went out and shaped the regulation and uh, new like laws. Um, but I think, yeah, I, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah. I, I also want to make note of one other, I guess, that's uh, a success, I guess you could call it, that some of my more conservative friends have highlighted with regards to this current administration, that being sort of like the normalizing of relations uh, between Israel and a lot of the Arab states, the Gulf Arab states specifically. Um, although I, I also would note that I think a lot of these agreements that we've seen mostly within the last year uh, and a half are, are just kind of the result of like uh, states like um, United Arab Emirates that are just more interested in getting lucrative defense contracts with the United States and are therefore willing to actually acknowledge Israel. But I mean, putting all that aside, I think it is at least to some extent uh, a success of his administration in terms of just trying to normalize those relations that have historically been uh, very heated and also his somewhat of an attempt to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Um, I don't necessarily agree with the manner in which he's doing it, but I think that's something that a lot of Americans, regardless of party, have wanted to see done. And it's happening uh, at a very like basic level. And so I, I will give him credit for that at least. Yeah, no, and I, I, I'm less knowledgeable on both of those issues, but I, I agree with what you're saying um, because stability, we need a stability in the Middle East, um, and that has to start somewhere. And even if they are doing it because they're going to fat carrot, I think to a certain extent that's still a positive development. Um, it's going to be interesting to see whether those become lasting and meaningful, but even getting them on the table and getting the nominal agreements signed um, I think is important or just, I say side, but like in place um, to where these normalization of relations has happened is good. And then I, I'm on the same boat as you about the, uh, the drawdowns, at least I think, I think not a lot of people want us there anymore. Um, 
but it's it's always been the thing with Iraq and Afghanistan like what's what's the goal what's our game plan how's to do it and you know the history of us there has just been we don't really have a plan we're kind of figuring out while we're there and that's caused a ton of issues and I think we've seen that a little bit with the drawdown yeah I I'm curious like what um what do you want to see happen within like the Republican party over the next like four years? Do you kind of want to see Trump kind of fade into darkness and some of the more like moderate um, establishment types kind of regain the spotlight or, or uh, yeah, I I guess I'm just curious, like what do you see the future of the GOP being within the next four years? So what I see the future, what I want to happen are different. Totally different. Um, yeah, I guess. Totally. Yeah. So being as what I would consider more moderate or at least more establishment, I I'm in favor of the, you know, the moderate, the, you know, the adults in the room coming back and starting to lead the conversation. Um, and, you know, I was a Romney guy in 2012. Like I'd love to see him start to play a big role. I think. Dude, I, um, I hated Mitt Romney in 2012. Maybe it hates a strong word. I strongly disliked him. But like nowadays, it's just like, oh, my God, like I I would have appreciated him, you know, over half of the Republicans in the Senate any day. He's the only one who I feel like has demonstrated any bit of a backbone. Yeah, I think say what you will about his policies and his, you know, his you know, views. Um, I think it's clear that he he's kind of got that like moral leadership standard that we need more of totally um and it's it's been refreshing to see him um kind of take the stands where he feels he has to um and not be shy about doing it yeah um but yeah i i would love to see you know more romneys of the world um come back into play and start to drive the conversation in a way but frankly i just don't think that's that's happening i think the party is um so is far enough gone from that, that that's, that's going to be a while to work yeah. its way back in. I mean, um, I were, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, please. I was going to say, I worry kind of like on both ends um, of this kind of like faux populism uh, more so, I guess on the right of, you know, like very, like I mentioned earlier, legitimate anger about uh, just like corruption, anti-establishment, uh, you know, draining the swamp. I think all legitimate, desires um that have not been close to fulfilled i would say in the last four years but are nonetheless legitimate and i i sincerely hope that you know both parties are able to kind of come back towards the center and that's generally the idea of this podcast i mean when i created it the idea was to appeal more so to the the twitter sphere people who are attracted to like angry headlines and so i you know created like these monologue arguments that i hoped people would kind of listen to and then react in in equally um, uh, not angry, but I guess like inform. Irie. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know what I'm saying. But, but I mean, after trying that format out a bit, I, I just think people are just more into little conversations like this. Um, like I mentioned last week, I talked to a friend of mine who's a Trump supporter, and we had a great conversation. We were texting back and forth a little bit afterwards, just about random things we see in the headlines. And so I, I'm hopeful that this sort of, and again, I'm not trying to pretend like I'm. A solution by any means but just this is an example of like what the future of political dialogue in in this country could look like and, and will look like i'm just not that hopeful that uh under the current circumstances and just general media environment that that's going to be a, a realistic uh end goal yeah yeah um yeah very much so um and 
to, to use a personal anecdote. So uh, like the night before the election, I, I think it was Instagram. I posted like my predictions for what the states were. Um, and I, I basically just went by the polls. I used a lot of 538. Um, but the, the only states I ended up missing were Georgia and Florida. Um, and um, I, I did the same thing. I, I only missed uh, North Carolina. Okay. I, I ended up winning like 200 bucks on predicted betting on just like a bunch <laughs> of random ass outcomes this year. Yeah, no, uh, I, I did some of that too. Um, but like I, I, when I posted it, I was just like, I didn't make any political statements because like I voted for Biden, uh, but like I didn't, I didn't advertise that. I said, here's what I think is going to happen. And I kept it very apolitical. Mm-hmm. Um, and I heard secondhand through um, one of my friends who I worked with on the Hill that one of my former coworkers, who's now at the White House, I guess now or leaving the White House, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, it was essentially like calling me like a traitor to the Republican party for not, not, not voting for Biden, but for <laughs> saying for that predicting. Biden was going to win. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm just like, how do I have a conversation with that? Like if I'm, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm the enemy because I disagree with you. Um, uh, not even on, um, on a political level, but just like from a factual and like prediction standpoint. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's tough. Um, I've I've talked to numerous people who have lost. I mean, I've I know that I've been defriended by certain people for posting my angry bullshit political tirades on Facebook. I don't mm-hmm. necessarily blame them necessarily, but uh, yeah, I've talked I've talked to numerous like Trump supporters even who feel completely isolated for speaking their mind. And I I, I do want to make clear, like, and I brought this up last week when I disagree with people, I try not to, and mostly don't disagree with their opinions unless those opinions are just like based in like complete false reality, in which case, like, yes, I will argue against your opinion. But I think there is a lot of appetite for having like a civil uh, debate or conversation about differing opinions, but not differing uh, uh, interpretations of like objective truths with, which I think a lot of the unfortunately a lot of this country just doesn't necessarily believe in anymore yeah yeah no um i completely agree with you and it, it's tough um and it goes back to all the issues we've kind of already talked about but just like um it's it's not going to be an easy fix um no matter what we do um yeah but yeah it, it'll it'll be i, I think we're going to see these factors kind of play out in the republican party to a certain extent um we've seen it already um you know cheney um liz cheney yeah, already getting recall petitions um, to lose your spot in leadership. Um, and we're going to see it. It's going to be interesting to watch the impeachment trial because arguably the two people with the most to gain or lose, depending on what happens, might be Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, who would probably be front writers or close to it in a Republican field of 2024 without Trump. Mm-hmm. Um and so from just like that sheer political standpoint, you would expect that they would be eager to convict and get him out of there. But then you run into the issues that if they convict, they're going to lose that front runner status. And uh, oh, sorry. no, no, I was just going to say, like, I, I had hoped after the riots, you know, the conversation would have or not the conversation, but like the momentum would have shifted towards, you know, them removing Trump and having that be like the final um like watershed moment to break them of their spell. But I, I feel like, you know, recent polling since then is kind of showing that I think 
people like Cruz and Holly are going to benefit from, from this. And I, I don't know, I could be wrong. Um, but yeah, it's going to be an interesting next few days, let alone months and years for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think politically the, the impeachment trial is just going to be really interesting to watch because, yeah. um, you know, I have tons of issues with we're four, we're, we're four years through it and you're still getting people saying, oh, well, I hate Trump. I just have to support him for whatever reason. Um, I think we're well past that point where that's acceptable, but um, that's my own opinion on it. Um, mm-hmm. And the talk is, so the, the word, the rumors going around is that if McConnell votes to convict is that they'll get 67. Yeah. Um, but without McConnell, they won't get 67. Um, I think just the fact that he express the interest in potentially convicting demonstrates that there are probably already six other Republican senators who would be on board. I mean, I think, I think right now there's a pretty good argument that there's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 54 to 55 yeses. Um, so you've got the 50 Democrats. Um, my guess is that you're going to, you're going to see the, the Romneys, the Sasses, the Murkowski's, the Collins, um, my guess is we see them, and I think that's that gets us to fifty-four. Um, but also, just McConnell McConnell voting in favor gives political cover to everybody who also does it. Totally. Uh, McConnell's thing has always been. Um, I have a begrudging respect for Mitch McConnell in a lot of ways. I there some that a makes lot of, one of us. What that makes one of us. <laughs> he's he's got a lot of policies that I agree with. Through, um, I don't think there's really an argument against the fact that from a political power standpoint, he's been the most effective politician of the past like 10 years um, for better, or for worse. Yeah. Um, and he's always wanted, he's always viewed his role as like the guard quote unquote, the guardian of the Senate, like trying to keep the Senate as the Senate. And like, that's always been his goal is keeping it Republican and doing that. Yeah. Um, and Georgia, it seems has really shaken up um what McConnell thought on that because he was he was happy to hitch the Trump uh, hitch the Trump bandwagon when it was clear that it was winning races, um, and now it's kind of clear that it's not it's not going to do it, um, and so it'll be interesting. Like I guarantee you, he's running numbers to some extent, trying to figure out um, you know what are, what are the costs of doing this, what are the benefits um, because. He will he will vote to convict in a heartbeat if he thinks it's going to like severely damage the GOP in the Senate. Um, But I mean, it's not simple because I think you remove you remove Trump from the Georgia races, then I think those results might be a little bit different. But um, or they're at least closer, I think. Um, But if you also vote to convict Trump, then you're just telling half your base, you know, f off, and then. that creates issues. And so it's, I think he's looking at it from a sheerly political standpoint. It's like, is this going to help us? Is this going to hurt us? Yeah. But I mean, it's Mitch McConnell. I think he views literally every decision in his life from a purely political like standpoint, like what, what used to retain power. Um, I guess my, my concern is that he could potentially use this to drive a wedge within not just the GOP unintentionally, but within the democratic party also, and use it, the trial to, spend a lot of Biden's political capital um, that I think a lot of Democrats want to see applied elsewhere, like on HR one, a lot of these democratic reforms that we were talking about earlier. Um, I think Biden is going to stay 
I because I I mean I haven't been following what he's been saying on it closely, but it wouldn't shock me if he if he doesn't want to get involved. Super yeah, yeah, he's going to stay like pretty hands off. But he, I think he knows that he needs the Senate not just for like you know um, cabinet confirmations, but uh, in order to get through a lot of the legislation that has been sitting on uh, McConnell's desk for the last four years or two years, I should say. Um, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. It, it'll be interesting. Uh, but anyways, I, I do want to, because I know it's getting close to your poker game. Um, I do want to end with a, a quick anecdote. I, I sort of ended my last conversation by bringing up a story that I read um, that just demonstrated like a, a moment of bipartisan politics and, and the Congress before uh, the actual riots happened. And this time, I just want to talk about um, the one of the representatives from Michigan who I heard interviewed on an episode of The Daily uh, a few days ago. Um, he was one of the 10 Republicans in the House who voted uh, for impeachment. And so I was curious to listen to his conversation. Uh, and by the end of it, I was genuinely just um, encouraged, I guess, because I think when I'm on Twitter and I honestly try to stay away from Twitter as much as possible. But whenever I do, I just, you know, after like an hour of scrolling, just step back and just hate the world, hate politics um, and a lot of. Republican politicians uh, specifically, but after listening to this guy's conversation and having him kind of walk through what inspired him to vote to impeach, as well as just uh, getting a chance to listen to what his view of the world and America's role and just like what conservatism means to him was very inspiring because he's, I think like 31 years old. Um, he believes in climate change, which is great. And I think is starting to gain a lot more traction on the right um luckily yeah not as much of a single issue a single side issue as it used to be for sure yeah yeah um and so that kind of conversation really just uh again made me inspired there are plenty of issues that i disagree with him on but at least like listening to him talk about why he made the decision fully aware that it could be his political suicide and still he made it anyways was inspiring and so i, I guess I don't really have a question here other than like, do you have any similar kind of anecdote or story that inspires you for the next four years, given how dark the last like few weeks have been? Um, give me a second to think about it, but on the guy, I, I know who you're talking about. It's, it's like, it's spelled M E I G or J E R. I just don't know how to say it. So I'm He's not a gonna... Meyer Meyer. I think his Meyer, family okay. owns like the Meyer supermarkets. Okay. Uh, I didn't want to risk embarrassing myself by <laughs> the pronunciation of his last I, name. I think it's pronounced Meyer. I, I could sound like an idiot. Okay, well, you, you words, gave me the check it out later. <laughs> um, but he, so that district is interesting because that was Justin Amash's district yeah. for 10 years. And Justin Amash, um, you know, for better or for worse, always a very principled guy and not, totally. not afraid to do that um, because he was, he was like semi-famous because he would post a justification or why he voted for what, you know, every single vote he took and he would share his justification about why he voted for it, which is, seems like such a basic thing, but nobody does. Yeah. Um, but I always really respected that he was very principled, very, we disagreed on a lot of things, um, but yeah. very principled and stuck to those principles. I, I, I liked, like Justin Amash. Um, and I will also note though, I'm pretty sure that seat was Gerald Ford's. Like way was back, it really? In, mm -hmm, way back in the day, and so uh, yeah, I mean, with, with the topic of 
impeachment and uh, not that I would ever expect Biden to pardon Trump uh, in order to restore unity in the country. But yeah, I just thought I'd bring that up. Yeah. Um, I, I can't bring to mind a specific anecdote, but um, I'm just I'm just hopeful because um, I mean, I think we can look at the last few weeks and say that our democracy has been tested in ways. Um, I mean, at least since the Civil War, arguably ever um, and survived. You know, we're a little worse for the wear. Um, we may be, you know, wounded, but like it survived. Um, and I think that has to be a sign of hope that we, we went through this stress test, but made it through. Um, and I think things will get better um, eventually. I don't know if there's a lot of short-term fixes, but I think that it's, you know, America's still standing and, um, you know, what has made us great in the past and um, has caused it and what our issues are now aside. I think we can still go back um, and still be better, continue to strive to be better than we were. Um, and I think everything that we need is like available. It's just whether or not we're going to be able to execute on it. Yeah. Well, hey, man, I, I would love to have you back sometime in the, in the future, um, because I think there are a lot of topics that we could get into a lot more specific detail on that mm -hmm. um, you probably know a lot more than I do, given your history working on the Hill. Um, but yeah, I mean, thanks for, for joining me for this conversation at the very least and, and for your support, uh, playing PolitiQ. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's been fun. Um, I, I've enjoyed having this conversation. I'd love to come back on just, you know, you know how to get a hold of me. Um, and it's, uh, it's fun. I like, I like staying up to date anyway. Um, and so if I can, you know, have some fun, make a little money doing it. I'll yeah. take advantage. <laughs> I think I, I think I asked you in one of the game shows, but what is your like daily, um, not diet, but like process for consuming the news because you're, you're very well read. You clearly uh, are, you know, make an effort to expose yourself to differing opinions. Uh, so what, what do you, what are the, your go-to sources? Um, so I'm, I'm big on the newsletters. So I like read like somewhere in the neighborhood of like 10 newsletters a morning. Um, and it's like the first thing I do, like I wake up, I'll like, you know, briefly check social media emails that came in. Um, and I go through the news. It's so it's usually like the first hour of my day. Um, and it's like helps me wake up, but also just like make sure I kind of know what's going on. Um, I really like political playbook. Um, that's one of my favorites. Um, Axios does a lot of really good newsletters. Um, and just kind of trying to stay informed. Um, I like, uh, I, I read a lot of news articles. I try to balance what I read. So, um, whether that's, um, you know, following a conservative pundit on Twitter and following a liberal pundit on Twitter. Um, I try to, I try to like, I try not to filter things based off what I think of whatever it's saying. Um, I mean, I, I'll, I'll filter based on quality for sure, yeah. but um, I try very hard to make sure that I'm not just like cutting something out of my diet because I don't like what it's saying. Yeah. Um, and I think that's served me pretty well. Do you uh, subscribe to the dispatch by chance? Um, I don't. It's, um, I, it's, I also rely on newsletters probably for my daily news consumption. And the dispatch is probably one of my favorite, more conservative leaning one. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I follow like the, I, like I'm generally familiar with like the bulwark dispatch. Um, I stay up to date um, on that stuff, but for the most part, like I'll, I'll read pieces in the Atlantic every once in a while. Um, but I, I, I tend to stay away from 
um, just like think pieces, I guess. Yeah. Think pieces is the wrong word, but like just like um, I don't know how to fully describe it. Um, I'm like yeah, like a deep mind. dive. Yeah, I, I kind of feel you. Not necessarily deep dives, but just like trying to stay away from just like um, I don't know really know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's I, I just I think more is better, and then I try to filter by myself and go from there. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that concludes my conversation with Jake uh, and the first episode of season two of Prove Me Wrong, please. Um, thanks for listening. And again, thank you to Jake for participating. Um, like I said at the top, if you are interested in contributing your thoughts, either via email or a direct conversation with me, feel free to call the Google Voice number on my Twitter account, which is at ProvePlease. Uh, the phone number itself is 415-763-7697. Otherwise, be sure to subscribe. And um, yeah, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you again in a week. Cheers. Cheers.